0: Thank you, Melissa. Good morning, TVC. And I do it every time. Good morning, TVC. I need more espresso than that, guys. My name is Eric Solomon. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. Specifically, I'm the campus pastor here at TVC, and I am just grateful for the opportunity to worship with you this morning, to open up the Word of God for you this morning. I'm glad that you're in this space, and not just that you're at TVC, but in this space, whether online or on campus with us here right now to pray together to sing together to hear from God's word together. And we're in this teaching series that we've talked about before this invincible church. We've been going back to the basics of what it means to be the church, to be this invincible church, invincible because we are gathered by the creator king of the universe to be the hope of the world, to to pray and hear God's word to worship together. Invincible because we are the body of Christ on mission in the world to make disciples who make disciples. And this morning we turn to another identifying characteristic of that invincible church, what it means to have a life of repentance. Core to the DNA of an invincible church is the very reality that even on mission pointing people to Jesus day after day, we are not ourselves invincible. We are still in process. We haven't arrived. God is still molding and shaping and conforming us to the image of Christ. And the primary way in which he does this is through repentance, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but over and over and over again throughout the Christian life. In order to show you what that looks like this morning, we're going to be turning to Psalm 51. So if you want to grab your Bibles, open up to Psalm 51. If you're new to the Bible, no worries. We're going to have the text up on the screen, but I just want to, again, welcome you into this space Come find Melissa or I after. We would love to help you get familiar with your Bible and familiar with our community. Introduce yourself to us. We want to be a place that is is here to teach you what God's Word says. So, we'll start with Psalm 51. If you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jackie Hill Perry writes, sin, when in the body, cannot not stay put. It's not a guest that stays in one room, making sure not to disturb the others. It is a tenant that lives in everything and goes everywhere. It can bleed into every part, choking out anything holy. The glass shattered and broke when it moved in. Sin cannot be caged, confined, or kept under control, no matter how much you think you can. It does not obey commands to stay put or lie down. It will not live within the boundaries you try to set for it. It will not stay quiet when you try to hide it. Sin is radioactive. A touch contaminates the fumes, choke, and its effects are catastrophic. But here's the worst part about it. Sin is catastrophic not just because of what it is, but because of how much we try to deny it. We pretend it doesn't exist. We believe that in general, people are basically good. In 2012, the New York Times columnist David Brooks points this out. A secular writer, in his piece, When the Good Do Bad, writing, it's always interesting to read the quotations of people who knew a mass murderer before he killed. They usually express complete bafflement that a person who seemed so kind and normal could do something so horrific. We cannot deny the existence of sin. We cannot avoid the devastation it has brought to all of creation. And this morning, we're not going to run away from the horror of our sin, but we are going to run to the joy of salvation because of it. And we can only do that on the path of repentance. To be clear, before we jump into looking at our text, when we talk about repentance, what we are talking about is that which the Bible describes as a turning away from sin And back to God. It evokes this image of going in one direction and then turning around and going in another direction. Recognizing the error and and danger of going one way and responding to that danger by going another way. Repentance is acknowledging the sinfulness of a particular path. And making good on that acknowledgement by going the path of God. In Psalm 51 In other words, we're going to see that repentance is realignment with the way of the king. Repentance is realignment with the way of the king. And we're going to see that there are four different postures of repentance in this prayer. Those postures are true humility, true ownership, true change, and true worship. And that's how we're going to walk through this psalm this morning, by stopping at each section and examining the posture of David, experiencing the posture of repentance. But there's something really important that we need to see before we start with the first verse of this psalm. And if you've heard me preach multiple times, you know where I'm going. We need to look at context. This psalm is one of the few that actually gives the context in which it's written. Look at the first part of the Bible right next to the biggest number. Right at the beginning of the psalm, we get this context of painful misalignment. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba like the most powerful songs or poems that move us, Psalm 51 comes out of this tense situation filled with suspense and emotion and pain. The text explains that it is written after the prophet Nathan comes to David after he had committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And if you're not familiar with the story from 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I'm gonna give you the Cliff Notes version here this morning. King David, who was not where he should be, ends up where he shouldn't be, spying on a woman named Bathsheba as she's bathing, and his desire overcomes his integrity, and he starts to ask questions about her, eventually finding out that she's married. But by this point, his desire is speeding past any warning signs, and he takes her home and he sleeps with her. As this psalm makes clear, he commits adultery, and the story of this betrayal evolves into a story of strategic deception when Bathsheba realizes she's pregnant. And through this strategic maneuvering that he should be reserving for the army he is supposed to be leading, King David is trying to hide what happened. His first plan backfires, sending him to another more sinister plan, a plan of assassination. Long story short, David convinces the commander of his army to intentionally make a foolish mistake in battle, which leads to the death of one of his soldiers, Bathsheba's husband. And the story ends with the words in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The conniving, scheming, suspenseful, and rated R tone of this story leaves us wondering, what in the world is about to happen with this man that elsewhere in the Bible is described as a man after God's own heart? And as we're left wondering, the next chapter starts with these words, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan, the prophet of God, meant to speak truth to power to be God's consistent, corrective, and guiding voice in the nation as well as the house of the king. That prophet Nathan comes to King David at the direction of God, and he starts by telling the king a story. The story has such an effect on David that by the end of it, he is seething. He is angry, ready to enact justice until Nathan pierces through his anger with the words, you are the man. You are the villain of this story. The air gets sucked out of the room and Nathan asks a painful question in 2 Samuel twelve nine. He asks David, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. Why did you despise the word of God? Why did you show your disdain, your contempt for the ways of God by doing what he described us not to do in his words, by doing evil? You showed your true colors, David. And in this story that forms the backdrop of this psalm, we see how God uses the creativity of a story, the care of a friend, and the conviction of his word to not only call David to repentance, but to draw him into repentance. The story isn't just about a judge pounding his gavel, declaring someone to be guilty. The story is about a father disciplining his child with the hope of restoration, of renewal. Now, Nathan, if you've read the story, doesn't stop with his question, right? He pronounces judgment, violent judgment on the house of David, violent and public judgment. And yet look at the next verse up on the screen. David's immediate response to the story from a friend who brought the word of God isn't avoidance or blame shifting or minimizing No, in humility, he owns his sin, as it is, as first and foremost, an offense against God. Look at the text. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son son born to you will die. The immediate response to the conviction of the prophet Nathan, the conviction of God through the prophet Nathan, is ownership and then forgiveness, even if it's not the complete removal of the consequences. It is against this backdrop that the prayer of Psalm 51 radiates a heart of repentance that says, I have sinned against the Lord. It is this context that we see the different postures we must take if we are going to repent and find realignment with God. So with that context in mind, let's turn back to Psalm 51 and look at those four postures, true humility, True ownership, true change, and true worship. We'll start with that first posture, true humility. The, the reason repentance begins with true humility is because we can't repent for what we don't think is a problem, right? We, why would we seek to realign with God's ways if we didn't think our ways were misaligned in the first place? If we didn't think our ways were wrong? The necessary first step of repentance is an authentic humility that says, I need God. I need need only what God can give. Not only am I wrong, but I don't know how to get what's right without God. And that is precisely what David does at the beginning of his prayer. He humbles himself before God. Look at how he begins in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't tiptoe around it. He goes right to it. Have mercy And in this humble approach, he is already acknowledging and leaning into the fact that he needs mercy and God is the one to give it. But not just any God. Look at the text. David describes him as a God with unfailing love, with great compassion, who is true to his character. So David knows that he can ask according to God's character. A God who is able to remove his transgression, wash his iniquity, cleanse him from sin. David is here describing God, as God has himself described who he is in his word, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving and just. This is who God is. And that's who David is praying to. He's asking for mercy as someone who has enjoyed that love before, who has experienced the relationship so he knows who to go when things go wrong. This is the posture of someone who does know he has no claim to what he's asking. This is not a demand, but it is a plea. It's not a reckless plea filled with flattery, hoping to avoid pain if he just gets the right combination of words, but a desperate plea that has been defined by relationship. Notice also how David seems to kind of scour the biblical vocabulary of sin in these few verses. Transgressions, iniquity, sin. This kind of rhythm and rhyme in this poem will continue throughout, not just for sin, but for grace as well. And it produces this image of, of total and complete understanding of what sin is, a picture of how pervasive and insidious it is. No, no matter what word you use or form it takes, it, it also creates this beautiful experience of grace that comes in and totally and completely overtakes that sin, to the point where we can feel as we read this psalm the overwhelming desire for grace that blots out transgressions, that washes away iniquity, that cleanses any sin that breaks relationship with God. So the question then is before us in these first few verses, what does that posture of true humility look like in our lives? How do we demonstrate that we recognize not only our great sin, but our even greater God? How do we show that we truly understand that our way is wrong and leads to death and that his way is right and leads to life? How do we pray this prayer? Have mercy on us, O God, according to who you are who you have revealed yourself to be. Now, if we continue in this prayer, we know that the posture of true humility is not enough. And in fact, it's actually never alone if it is true humility. It's always followed up by our next posture, a posture of true ownership. You see, from the very beginning, we humans have not been good at owning our stuff, right? At taking responsibility for our actions, for our sin. Right? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake. Even now, we apologize for how we hurt people, and we struggle to not add the little caveat, like, I'm I'm so sorry I hurt you, but if you hadn't done X, Y, or Z, it, it kind of wouldn't have happened, right? YouTube is filled with a genre of apology videos where you can watch that blame shifting in action. True repentance, the kind of repentance that realigns us with the way of the king, requires a refusal to shift blame and a determination to own your sin. A refusal to shift blame and a determination to own your sin. Look at how David shows this to us in verses 3 through 5. He knows his transgressions, right? His sins are standing before him. He refuses to run away from them any longer. And he's here confessing willingly, accurately. No longer is it, how do I cover this up, like the story was saying. But in verse 4, it turns to, how could I possibly do this to God? he makes it clear that he understands his sin has not just had effects on a horizontal level, but on a vertical one. It is against God that he has sinned and done evil. That is not to say that Bathsheba and Uriah and the child conceived and the nation of Israel were not all affected by David's sin, but it is to say that at its core, sin is first and foremost an offense against God, even in the specifics. I'll show you. The Bible explains that our bodies are not our own, right? We belong to God who created them. It also explains that our neighbors are made in God's image, which means that things like adultery and murder violate God's ways in the deepest way possible, even as they violate God's creation in the most horrible way possible. See, we let ourselves off the hook too easily when we think of sin only in horizontal terms. Sin is not just wrong because it hurts people. It is wrong because it violates the one who created us. And as if that wasn't clear enough, David continues praying according to God's character. And this time he focuses in on God's righteousness and justice. God is just in all that he does. And this is why a posture of true ownership is grounded in a posture of true humility. Because repentance requires us to acknowledge and affirm that what God says about himself and his creation is true. David says as much in verse 5 when he essentially rejects the excuse that his sin is uh, out of character or a one-time thing, right? This wasn't a crazy mistake or a crime of passion. He explains in verse 5, this is completely in character. This is the extreme outworking of a heart that has been twisted in on itself by sin. This is who he has always been. From the moment he was conceived, he has been a sinner. The Bible does not let us express what David Brooks described as this complete bafflement that a person who seemed so kind and normal could do something so horrific. From verses 1 to 5, David demonstrates this humility, this ownership. Notice that he keeps using first-person pronouns over and over again. I, my, over and over. To demonstrate that his sins are his own, he is left without excuse They are the air he breathes, the water he swims in. He totally and completely owns his sin before God in prayer. And see, this is what's different about the kind of repentance we're talking about this morning. Because anybody can feel remorse. Can be sorry for doing bad things. But true repentance requires us to move past our symptoms and go right to the heart of the issue. True repentance requires a complete and utter disgust of the soul with all the ways in which we have aligned ourselves with sin and death. It is saying that, that what God says is true, that his path is true, that I sin. And not only that, I recognize that at the core of my being, without you, Lord, I am a sinner. I am not just a sinner because I sin, I sin because I am a sinner. And if you're feeling the weight of all that I have just said in these five verses, it's kind of okay. Because some of us really do need that. We move too quickly past the discomfort, the sorrow over sin that we struggle. We start to struggle more and more with minimization. We believe our sin really isn't all that bad. We never really sat with that sorrow over sin, felt the weight of our rebellion. This is why the weight of these five verses can be good for us. But other of us, I'm not going to pretend that others of us here really struggle with this. Because in fact, this is all that we do. Right, We sit and we wallow in our guilt. Conviction turns to condemnation laced with shame. The weight is crushing every single time when we do not get past verse five into the rest of the prayer. And let me tell you, that's not true repentance. True repentance certainly requires our first two postures, true humility, true ownership, but it also requires that third posture, true change. The ways of God... Our King, the justice and righteousness that characterizes him, the way of life that he has shown us through his word, that his law gives us, that his gospel gives us, is what begins the process of repentance by convicting us of sin, but it is only the beginning. Because true repentance requires a commitment to true change. You see, repentance, as I've been talking about it, can be broken down into these three components. We've already talked about a couple of them. It has this intellectual component, we recognize our own sin. It has an emotional component, right? We're broken by that sin, but it also has this third component, this volitional or voluntary component. We have to change. We abandon and reject our sin and embrace and accept the righteous way that God has laid out in his word. And David shows us what that looks like by starting in verse 6. He reestablishes God's standard. Look at the text. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. He has approached God in humility according to who God is. He has owned his own sin, but now he contrasts his sin with God's standard. He shows the canyon that sits between what he has confessed and what God desires. You see, God wants faithfulness, and God has shown us what it means to be faithful through his word. And because of that canyon, David knows that only God can take care of the problem, hence why he's coming to him in the first place. And then it just starts to pour out of him cleanse me, wash me, let me hear joy, let me rejoice, get rid of all this sin, he multiplies image after image to describe not only what he wants, but what he knows he needs. He needs to be made clean. He longs to be happy in God again. He pleads for it. And the images here are pretty striking because they are so complete. There are no half-baked solutions with God. His sin has penetrated all the way to his bones and his half-baked solutions won't work. He needs a miracle. And that is exactly what he asked for in the next verse. All of his requests culminate in verse 10. Create in me, Lord, a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. I know that I don't just need to be washed because I'll just get dirty again. I know that I don't just need to get rid of this sin. I need you to fix me at my core. I need a new heart. I need a new spirit that will be wholly devoted to you. He's asking the creator of everything to do it again, to create again, to make him new. Because that is what is necessary for true change. But if that's the positive side of true change, then verse 11 is the negative side. Please do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not rip me away from being before you. Don't kick me out. Don't remove your Holy Spirit and punish me. Please make me new. Don't throw me away. He knows that he does not deserve to be in the holy presence of God, but he asked not just so that he could stay in God's presence, but that he could be made holy so that he could stay. Not just holy, though. Joyful. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, true repentance is marked by joy as much as it is marked by grief. And this joy is part of the posture of true change. We need new hearts that allow us to be in the presence of the king for his service, to love and serve him willingly with joy. David asks here for what one commentator calls God's antidote, his own antidote to temptation. So when we have a posture of two change as we repent, this is how God responds, how God keeps us from giving into temptation again with a joyful and willing experience of our relationship with him. So the question then lies before us, what does our relationship with God look like right now? Is this our experience? Is it filled with joy? With a willing heart to be before Him? Is this what we hope for, we pray for, we repent of our sin for? Or are we still maybe in the midst of Psalm 51 feeling the weight of our sin? That we might once again enjoy this experience of God, but it's kind of hard to get rid of this weight. When we talk about joy and unwillingness of spirit, what comes to mind, what, um, what worries me is that we still struggle to find God's ways enjoyable at all. That they're just rules, things to do. And I didn't do them, and therefore I need to come here and repent. What David is praying for here, and what the gospel says later, is that God is not just about you checking a box. God is about making new people with new hearts. True repentance is about realignment with the way of the king precisely because we know and trust that there is joy and health and goodness on that path and he makes it so. And this is why David prays in the last verse of this section. Because a posture of true change, see it doesn't just stop at you being changed internally and and marked by this joy and this willingness this posture of true change becomes compelling. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. He's not trying to say, God, okay, if you do this, then I'll do this. As if this is a, a way to pay back God for what he's done. No, he, this isn't the path of a lone ranger, of a, but of a guide. You see, we repent with a posture of true humility before God, a posture of true ownership of our sin, a posture of true change in such a way that, it, that we bring others with us. We teach sinners like us the way of the king so that they too can be realigned with that way. And in this transmission is it's a credible witness because we can say, we remember We can say, I know what it's like. I've been there. A life of true repentance, a life that has been changed by God, is marked by a desire to teach and invite others to that same kind of life. True repentance is realignment with the way of the king. And in order for that to happen, we must have these three postures, right? True humility, true ownership, and true change. But there's a fourth posture that David brings up here at the end of his prayer. True worship. You see, repentance isn't finished until our worship also has been realigned. Until we have once again engaged in the relationship that sin had broken and disconnected. True repentance has as its final posture in this prayer, true worship. But look at verse 14. It turns on the horror of what David has done. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He has already begged God for a clean heart that he might stay in his presence. He's already admitted his sin before God as offensive. He has pleaded for mercy, and yet he knows that the heartwork is not done. He asks God for deliverance from guilt, for salvation from hands covered in blood. The horror of his sin weighs heavy in his heart, and as he hopes to worship God, he prays that God would remove that weight that we've been talking about. Get rid of this guilt, and I will sing, I will proclaim your righteousness He asks in verse 15 that God might open his lips. This is, as one writer puts it, the cry of a conscience that has been shamed into silence. Please, would you make it possible for me to speak again, to declare your praises? You see, that's what sin does. It doesn't just fill you with guilt. It keeps you from talking about the God you believe in. It shuts you down and it makes you wonder if you have the right to talk about this God. After all, you keep sinning. So how could you possibly talk about this God to anybody, let alone call yourself a Christian? Do you hear the condemnation that sin brings? A posture of true worship marks repentance with a desire for God to open our lips, to smash our shame, to enable us to live in the freedom of relationship with him. How have we been shamed into silence by our own consciences, by our own sin? What would it look like for us to sing of God's righteousness again? What would it take to declare his praise again as part of our repentance? See, David begins to show what it looks like when he writes in verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. David is not saying here that all the sacrifices that God has commanded up until this point are pointless, What he is making clear is that from the very beginning, these sacrifices are not themselves what God was after. God was always after a different heart, a kind of person, a type of spirit. It is not that sacrifices are wrong at this point, but that even the best sacrifice is disgusting to God without a humble and broken spirit and heart behind it. A heart that knows it deserves nothing and owes everything for its sin. The sorrow of sin permeates this psalm. And it's been heavy as I've been preaching this, even on me, and it's been heavy on me this week. But before we get to hope, I want to warn you of a problem that comes up when we feel this sorrow for sin, when we wallow in this guilt. Beware... That we do not wield our contrition, our sorrow for sin as a weapon or a bribe against God to forgive us. You see, we cannot cry enough tears or wail loud enough to convince God that we should be forgiven. The broken spirit, broken and contrite heart that David writes about here is not what compels God to forgive as if we have just traded one set of sacrifices for another. God is not like every other God where we have to figure out the right combination of words, and actions in order to please him. He's told us what pleases him. He's shown us his way. And in this prayer, David realigns himself with that way by recognizing his ability, his inability, to bring physical sacrifices that will fix that relationship. They were never meant to do that. The heart is what God has always been after. And so we talk about this true worship. Take a look at the last two verses of this prayer. They seem a bit odd in context, but it t- ties really well with what David has prayed in verse 13. You see, the posture of true worship is not just an individual posture, an island unto itself. It is always concerned with what happens inside a person, but it is also always concerned with what happens inside of a community. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, burnt offerings offered whole, bulls offered on your idol. There's this a strong relationship between our spiritual health and the health of the entire body of Christ. We are all connected through ligaments of faith and joints of trust. We all share together in the life that God pumps through the body by faith. We are all constantly being realigned to the way of the king together. You see, God is about the prospering, the flourishing of his people for his glory and for our good. And how does he do that? By answering David's prayer in verse 10. By giving us pure hearts. And how do I know that's he does, how he does that? Well, even at the end of the psalm, is already starting to hint at it. Look at verse 19. Then you will delight. Then things will be made right. Then things will be realigned. This prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, after the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, is profound. It de- de- demonstrates that repentance is realignment with the way of the king that repentance is this acknowledgement of the wrong ways we participate in. A turn to the right way we have been called to participate and created to participate in. In order to show this repentance, this prayer gives us four postures. I've been saying them over and over again. True humility, true ownership, true change, and true worship. And these postures all lead us through repentance to faith. We long for and pray with David for clean hearts, for pure hearts. But until the New Testament, that wasn't even possible. God was working in people, but but true clean hearts, brand new hearts, not possible until Jesus, until faith in Jesus. See, which is why I want to fast forward here to another text, really quick in the New Testament, to close our time this morning. I want to tell the story of another man who was confronted with his sin and brought to repentance. You see, if repentance is realignment with the way of the king, I want to tell the surprising story of the king who actually pursues. So if you want to turn to Luke 19 with me, Luke 19, 1 through 10, it's going to be up on the screen as well. And we're just going to read this. And this is how we're going to close tonight this morning. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. I wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead. He climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Notice here how Jesus takes the initiative, right? Zacchaeus worked really hard to see Jesus, but it is Jesus who has intentionally worked to encounter Zacchaeus. Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw him and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. See, in this this culture, tax collectors, especially chief tax collectors, are known as thieves for the Roman Empire, for the occupying force. They're not very well liked. And on top of that, to eat with a thief is actually to participate in that thief's crimes in this culture. The story does not look good, at least not yet. Verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up And said to the Lord, "Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Notice the impact that the presence of Jesus has on Zacchaeus here. He came down from the tree, he welcomes Jesus into his home, and in response to the grumbling of the crowd, but more importantly, the presence of Jesus, something happens to him that brings him to this point. Something has happened to him that causes him to demonstrate this extreme generosity, to provide restitution. I contend that it is repentance that happened to him. You see, I think here we're seeing the beauty of repentance marked by generosity and restitution, a dramatic change that reveals the shocking nature of grace. So how can I say that Zacchaeus received grace, that he repented? Why can't I make that argument? Well, look at the last two verses of this story. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. These last two verses, Jesus translates the moment for us. He explains that what we've seen externally is a reflection of what has happened internally. Repentance that has led to salvation. And all is at the initiative of the king who pursues. True repentance happens in the most unlikely of places. And is always connected to an extravagant outpouring of grace. And that grace is best seen in the actions of the repentance, in a changed life. Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and is forever changed. He believes in Jesus. And the story doesn't say that he does, but it clearly shows that he does. Because what he commits here is no easy task. Right? Uh, 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 he didn't get to be chief tax collector without a lot of extortion and a lot of bribing. A lot of thieving. So what he's committing to is a huge task and he commits to it with joy. He commits to being generous and restorative no matter the cost because of his encounter with Jesus. You see, this is what a life of repentance looks like. It is generous and restorative. It makes things right. It overflows in love and generosity in this story. Financially, in Psalm 51, relationally, you see in true humility, truly owning his sin and committing to true change, Zacchaeus here repents and is now able to truly worship And it is all because of the king who pursues. It is Jesus who is at the center of that story. It is Jesus who is chasing us. Our response is repentance. So the question that lies before us this morning is what does repentance look like in our lives? You see, over and over again I've been saying that repentance is realignment with the way of the king. But what I haven't fully explained is that the opportunity to truly repent for us cost the king dearly. See, Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Do you hear Psalm 51? My sin stands before me. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that God ultimately delights in the only one that God accepts because it is able, unlike any other sacrifice, to actually take away sin. And when we accept it, we demonstrate the broken and contrite hearts that David has been praying in Psalm 51 because that's what it takes to accept the gospel. You are broken before God. When Jesus died on the cross and came back to life, he granted the request of Psalm 51 to make us pure hearts. And not only does he do that, but he pursues everyone who is stuck in that sin, who is stuck in Second Samuel 11, stuck in our sin like David was stuck in his sin, and he brings us to Psalm 51, to a lifestyle of repentance through 2 Samuel 12, right, through confront, confrontation and conviction of sin, but he brings us to repentance by his presence, and though we sorrow over our sin, we are grateful that it is not our tears, our remorse, or our obedience that generates God's forgiveness that satisfies his judgment, that brings us peace. It is Christ's blood. It is only the gospel that can make us clean again. And as Christians, this doesn't stop at day one. That's why I said we're talking about a life of repentance. Because everything we just talked about, everything we just read, all of it is for way more than entrance into God's people. It is a reality that marks the daily rhythms of God's people. We are called to repent, yes, initially to become a Christian, but we are also called to repent continually to look more like Jesus. And it is that kind of lifestyle of repentance that validates our initial repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We used to be sinners who sin. Now we are Christians who repent. We are new creations in Christ. And we now live as those who are constantly being realigned with the way of the King in true humility, truly owning our sin because we don't no longer have to hide. Embracing true change that is enabled by the Spirit. Engaging in true worship. You see, I've said said this before, but I haven't said it in a while. You and I, we already know the worst thing about each other. That we are bad enough that Jesus had to die on the cross. We also already know the best thing about each other. That he loved us enough to do that. And that's why we live a life of repentance. So as we move into a time of prayer... I just want you to consider this. How have you been realigned with the way of the King through repentance in this season? How will you seek to be realigned to the way of the King in this next week? Let's pray that we might be confronted with our sin this week in order that we might trust in the finished work of Jesus to cleanse us from that sin, to participate in the continuing work of repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand before you Amazed. Amazed by the grace that you have shown us in Christ. We know that there is no health in us apart from you. We pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself. For those who are here today that don't believe in you, I pray that you might open their eyes, not only to their desperate condition apart from you, like you've opened our eyes, but to the incredible hope that you offer them. For those who here believe in you already, I pray that we might not lose sight of the sin that so easily entangles us that we might, like John 1 writes, be killing sin or it'll be killing us. May you, by your Spirit, wield the scalpel of your conviction to bring us to repentance and be brought back to health. Help us to never lose sight of the horror of sin, the righteousness of your salvation, the joy of Jesus, the beauty of your holiness, the wonder of your grace. We trust in your salvation. Would you continue to shape us through repentance by your gospel? It's in your son's name that we pray.